Well, it's a privilege to be with you once again. Tonight, we will finish our trek through uh, the very, to me, disturbing book of Judges. Uh, this, I'll tell you for the last time, has been the theme of the book, rebellion on the part of people and restoration on the part of God. And that's the summary of how God operates with us. We are inclined to rebel, and God, because of his gracious and merciful heart, is inclined to restore. As he was with Israel, you see, so too he is with all those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, this final chapter, which we'll take a look at tonight, chapter 21, see what you think. To me, it is the most disturbing chapter in all of the book of Judges. It's disturbing and it's flat out strange. In the previous chapter, just to refresh your memory, uh, we read about the tribe of Benjamin really on the brink of extinction. Here's how it came about. Members of the tribe of Benjamin, Benjamites we will refer to them as, some participated, well, in a gang rape It is what it was of a lady, a concubine, wedded to a Levite. They were guests in a city called Gibeah. By night, these ruffians uh, insisted on having relations with the Levite to save himself. He pushed this lady out to this uh, uh, crazed crowd so that they could do with her what they chose to do. And they did all night long, such that in the morning... Uh, she succumbed to it and, and passed away. Well, the Levites spread the word to the 11 tribes with regard to this horrific evil. They were aroused to seek vengeance, and so they're coming against the Benjamites, who refused really to give up the perpetrators of this horrific crime because they were members, fellow kindred members of the tribe of Benjamin. And so they went to war, brother against brother. The outcome being that all of the Benjamites were slaughtered. They died, men, women, and children, save for 600 who survived this uh, conflict. And now they are running for cover at this particular time. So that being the backdrop, Follow along with me now. We're in Judges 21, verse 1. Here's what it says. Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin in marriage. It was an oath or a vow that they took. When they came upon Benjamin, the 11 other tribes decided these Benjamites are so wrong in doing what they did. Let's make a pact that we will no longer offer our daughters to their sons in marriage. And they all agreed with it. So they made a decision at the peak of emotion. Have you ever done that? I have. And frequently when I do that, it doesn't take too long before I regret the decision. You'll see that they will soon come to regret it as well. So they took this vow, we're not going to give our daughters to them. Why not? Well, because they 
made war against us and did not turn over to us the perpetrators of this crime. Now you might wonder, why didn't the 11 tribes, before they committed to this vow, why didn't they commit to prayer? Why didn't they just seek God and say, oh God, what is your will? How should we respond to the Benjamites? I'll tell you why they didn't do it. They didn't do it because we, as we have often now read in this book, every man in that day did what was right in his own eyes. It did not matter to them what God reckoned to be right. All that matters is what they determined to be right. If it felt good, why can't we do it? That characterizes the entire book of Judges. Now, when the battle was over and victory over the Benjamites was won, the 11 victorious tribes, it seems, had time to reflect on things. They had time to look back on the decision they had made, and now they are realizing it was rather rash and that there are irreversible consequences they're going to have to live with. What's the consequence? In their vow, they may have, in effect, seen to the very extinction of an entire tribe of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, because the Benjamites are now left with only 600 surviving men. All the women were murdered. Therefore, if those 600 men of Benjamin were to have a future, they would be left with no choice, perhaps, but to take women who were non-Israelite. Their women are gone. They've been murdered. The 11 tribes said, we vowed not to give our daughters to your sons in marriage. That would leave the Benjamites, you see, only with the option of violating scripture and intermarrying with the Canaanites, for instance. So that's not a good thing. So these 11 tribes just realize, what have we done in effect, the decision we made may lead to an entire tribe of Israel vanishing from the face of the earth. So verse 2 says, they all got together at Bethel. They sat there before God. They lifted up their voices and they wept bitterly. And they said this in verse 3. They said, why, O Lord God of Israel, has this come about? Why? O Lord, has this come about in Israel? Am I reading too much into this to think that is a veiled insinuation that God is responsible for the dilemma they got themselves into? They made a rash decision, the consequences of which they're now living with, and in asking God this question, they are insinuating he's responsible. Uh, they are insinuating, oh God, you're supposed to be the divine protector of Israel. How could you let this happen? One tribe of Israel is on the brink of extinction. God, you are not fulfilling your role as divine protector of your people. And so they pose the question to God, why has this come about? Well, the answer really, if they were able to be rational and objective, is easy. This has come about because of the excessive vengeance they perpetrated upon their own brothers, the tribe of Benjamin. Why has this come about? They ask God. And you'll notice in the text, remarkably, God does not answer. What is your response, O oh God, to this question? 
Why has this come about? Well, search as you may. You, you will find only silence, a very loud, silent response by Almighty God. In fact, the silence in this case, the silence of God is rather deafening. Folks, when God chooses to be silent, people are in big trouble. You and I are not taking for granted, are we, that we have a communicating father who delights in revelation, not just the final book revelation, but in a relationship with his sons and daughters characterized by him revealing his will and ways to us. Can you imagine how horrific it would be if for some reason our father shut it all up and said, you'll not hear from me again. Well, at this time in ancient Israel, that's what happened. So God was silent. And it came about, verse 4, the next day, the people arose early. They built an, offer, an altar there, and they offered various kinds of offerings, burnt offering, peace offering. And the sons of Israel said, who is there among all the tribes of Israel who didn't come up with us in the assembly of the Lord? Uh, they've taken an oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying he'll surely be put to death. So this tells us about a second oath. First one, we're not going to give our daughters to their sons. Second oath, hey, if any Israelites refuse to join with us in battle against the Benjamites, we're going to kill them. So they took two vows. And so this is a pretty serious matter. So verse 6, the sons of Israel were sorry for their brother Benjamin and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel today. They, in some measure, realized the consequences of one of the 12 tribes of Israel being cut off, vanishing from the face of the earth. But I do not think they realized just how significant that potential reality is. So let me give you a brief uh, word on why the survival of all 12 tribes of Israel is essential with reference to the integrity and character of God. And for this, let me read to you from Revelation 21, not Judges 21, Revelation 21, uh, beginning in verse 10. And he carried me that's John referring to his experience. He carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. He's speaking about the new Jerusalem yet to come. This uh, city came down from heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance, John describes, was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. And then in verse 12, Revelation 21, John said this. I'll show it to you on the screen because I want to highlight it. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Not 11 tribes, but 12. So in order for this prophecy of events to come, given to John by Almighty God, in order for it to be fulfilled, you have to have Israel preserved in, in existence in the end times. If one, even one of the 12 tribes of Israel has perished from the earth, 
then God can be said to be a liar. Now, the one who would really love for that to be the case is Satan himself, the father of lies. If he can prove that God didn't keep his word to Israel, he can call into question our confidence in God, who's made promises to us as the church of Jesus Christ. So that Benjamin be preserved as one of the 12 tribes is so very, very important in order for us to have confidence in God's word and his promises and the integrity and the character of his personhood. So the 11 tribes in some measure realizes the consequences of their actions and rash vows now. And so they say what they do in verse seven, what shall we do for the wives of those who are left? 600 Benjamites, since we've sworn by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage. They see a problem. It happens to be a problem of their own creation, and they come up with a solution of their own creation. What's going on? You see, folks, everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. And they said, here's their solution, verse 8. What one is there of the tribes of Israel who did not come up with us to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from a place called Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. Jabesh-Gilead is a place about two miles east of the Jordan River. Apparently, these Israelites didn't show up for battle. So verse 9, when the people were numbered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So this is what the 11 tribes are thinking. They're saying, you know, we who came up to battle against the Benjamites, we took an oath saying we're not going to give our daughters to their sons in marriage. But the men of Jabesh Gilead didn't show up at all. Therefore, they did not participate in this oath. As a result, their daughters could be given to the Benjamites. If you think this is a little bit of twisted thinking, you are correct. So based on this crazy rationalization, this is what they did. Verse 10, the congregation sent 12,000 of the valiant warriors there and commanded them saying, go strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword with the women and the little ones. This is the thing you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every man and every woman who has lain with a man. And then we get this in verse 12. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead, please note this number, 400 young virgins who had not known a man. They killed everybody else. But there were 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them, these 400, to the camp at a place called Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. So they're thinking, this is really great. We have now found 400 women. We can, we'll kidnap them. We'll just, we'll kill everybody else, which is what they did. And uh, we'll take these 400 and we will bring them to 400 of the 600 surviving Benjamites and they'll be able to, you know, marry and produce children and be guaranteed a future. However, if, if you're even a, a basic math student like me, 400 from 600 is 200, right? So that means the problem they thought they solved was not really 
is solved at all because you have 200 Benjamites still left without mates who are going to be their partners. And so how are they going to solve that problem? Folks, it gets crazier. Verse 19. So they said, behold, there's a feast of the Lord from year to year in Shiloh, which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east side of the highway that goes up from Bethel to uh, Shechem and on the south side of Lebona. Why all those very specific geographic indicators? I think it's to persuade us, the readers, that this is not mythological. This is historically verifiable. This took place in a space-time dimension. It's not Aesop's fables. This is the word of God. In fact, I want to show you a picture of Shiloh that we took, actual picture we took on one of our trips to Israel. Those are the runes of uh, ancient Shiloh. It's a place where for over 300 years, the tabernacle uh, of the Lord was uh, placed. Before the temple was constructed in Jerusalem, the tabernacle was right here in Shiloh. In fact, here are some of our good Sagemont folks uh, walking around there on the uh, precincts of ancient uh, Shiloh. So it's a real place. So they come up with a plan. There's some kind of festival at Shiloh. It takes place yearly. So they say in verse 20, uh, it says, they commanded the sons of Benjamin saying, go and lie and wait in the vineyards, hide out in the vineyards and watch. And behold, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the dances, uh, you shall come out of the vineyards and each of you shall catch his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and take them, go to the land of Benjamin. So here's a kind of a modern day vineyard in Israel, just to give you a notion how the Benjamites, these 200 uh, guys without partners, could be hiding in the vineyards. And when these daughters of Israel are dancing around, you know, at some kind of who knows what kind of festival, uh, <laughs> the Benjamites are authorized to just jump out and grab hold of them. You see, the 11 tribes think they found a loophole to get them around the crazy vow that they took. Here's the loophole. We made a vow not to give our daughters to the Benjamites, but we didn't say anything about the Benjamites taking them for themselves. Is this nuts or is it just me? Folks, I want to tell you something. When everyone does what's right in his own eyes, you get insanity like we're reading about right here. So uh, uh, based on this crazy rationalization, the 200 Benjamites are going to kidnap 200 unsuspecting, absolutely innocent daughters of Shiloh and force them to be their marital partners. And boy, I'll bet you that's the formula for a successful marriage, don't you think? Hey, don't you think this is ironical? The same men who assembled to right the wrong done by the Benjamites to the concubine don't seem to have any problem authorizing the taking against their will of these women. Look, when you're doing what's right in your own eyes, when you're not living according to any standards of absolutes, particularly God's, crazy things are justifiable. The tribe of Benjamin enabled the men of Gibeah to participate in a gang rape of one woman. But look at here, the other 11 tribes now enabled what's left of the tribe of Benjamin to violate 600 women. Crazy. When everyone does what's right in his own eyes, you get the book of Judges, and look, I'm really sorry here, I don't want to ruin your night, but I think you get modern-day America as well. 
So the Benjamites did this. They hid in the vineyards and they took their wives, 200 wives, and they carried them off and they lived happily ever after. I doubt it. And now we read the very last verse uh, here in the book of Judges. Judges 21, verse 25. Here's what it says. In those days there was no king. No king in Israel. What is significant about that? Uh, uh, Folks, you and I have our... um, concerns about government, and they're legitimate. However, the fundamental notion of government is really a good one. It's God's idea. I'll tell you why. Human sinfulness necessitates governance. Why? Because if there's no governance, we all do what's right in our own eyes, and you know what you get? Seattle, Washington, Portland, Oregon, Chicago, Illinois. You get anarchy. You get everyone doing what's right in his or her own eyes. And so God ordained government. It's a divine institution in order to restrain the sinful impulses of citizenry who are otherwise unrestrained and to protect innocent citizens from those who will do them harm. You can find this in Romans 13. Hey, Lord willing, we'll see. Uh, Our plan is that in mid-September... We're going to um, do Wednesday nights in a much better way, offering lots of options and electives. And one that uh, I've been invited to participate in is a study on government. That's what I want to do. I don't know if you're interested in it, but I become interested in this day of government. I, I want to find answers to the question, whose idea is government? What is the purpose of government? What could government expect of us? What uh, does government have no right to expect of us? What could we expect of our government? What do we have no right to expect of our government? So that'll be Lord willing in September. You'll be hearing much more about that. So at this point, we see that human sinfulness um, necessitates the restraint of government. But in this day, look at these telling words, no king. In those days, there was no governance. There was no king in Israel. Why? Because the people became ungovernable. They refused to be restrained and live by laws. And so you see this point in Israel's history, kingless, during which the people refused to be governed. And you see the crazy uh, result you get. You get social, societal deterioration. You get moral decisions being made uh, in accordance with one's own subjective sense of right or wrong. It's called moral relativism. That's a person who says to you when you share with them one of the moral imperatives of the Bible, that person says to you, well, that's right for you, but it is not right for me. That's called moral relativism, but it's nonsense because the God who is there has absolute moral imperatives. He has standards of right and wrong, and they're uncompromised. They're not relative at all. But in this day, look, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so... We have seen as we've traipsed through the book of Judges, when this is what characterizes a society, you get moral degradation and social upheaval. And if you think the book of Judges is just ancient history, 
watch the news tonight and you'll see that it's quite applicable to the day in which we live. Now, let me mention something to you I'm not sure you're aware of, but we're here to help. I don't know if you knew this, but in November, uh, there's an election for the president. Did you know about this? I don't know if you heard anything about it. Yeah. We're going to elect a president in November, I'm told. So let me tell you this. Though, though I come from a long line of prophets, I cannot predict uh, the outcome of the election, but I can make this prediction. Whoever is elected in November, it doesn't matter, a good number of people are going to be angry and disappointed. No matter who is elected, I predict <laughs> a good number of people, regardless of the result, are going to be angry and disappointed. And it may be some of us. Therefore, whatever may be the outcome of the election, and I don't know what it is, I'm praying and I will vote and I encourage you to do the same, but I, I cannot predict the future, nor can you, but we can prepare for it. So in preparation for whatever may be the outcome of the election, uh, allow me to remind you and me of this. As the Lord of history, God is free to choose whomever he wants to work through so as to accomplish his plans and purposes. God is free. Therefore, whoever is elected in November, be careful of perhaps sinking into despair and hopelessness because God is not limited and he can work through anybody, willing or unwilling vessel, so as to accomplish his purposes. How can he do that? He's sovereign. <laughs> He's in control. And often God's choice of who will run a government are quite surprising. Uh, we surely, I think, have seen that in the book of Judges. For instance, on one occasion, God chose an assassin. His name was Ehud, one of the judges here in the book. On another occasion, he chose a woman named Deborah. On another occasion, he chose an outright coward from a blatantly insignificant family. His name was Gideon. On another occasion, he chose a very rash son whose mom was a prostitute, Jephthah, to be a judge in Israel. And then he chose a womanizer, a rabid, unbridled womanizer named Samson, through whom God accomplished his purposes. Please uh, take courage. We don't have to wait for the outcome of the election in November to be at peace, knowing the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus, is on the throne. In his sovereignty, God chose to allow flawed and sinful and defective people with astounding moral shortcomings. We've seen them on display in the book of Judges. He has chosen to work through all of these to accomplish his purposes. No matter what happens in November, the purposes of the Almighty are going to be accomplished. Therefore, since God is sovereign and good, since we now see he can use anybody to further his plans, we must not fear. So fight that impulse, would you please? Fight that impulse. Now, the book of Judges, a time without a king, reminds us, does it not, just how much we really need a righteous king to rule and reign over us 
uh, let me joyfully remind you we have such a one. His name is King Jesus. And so I want to, as we draw to a close, simply ask you this question. Is Jesus your king? Have you chosen to dethrone yourself and let Jesus be enthroned on the throne of your heart? Is Jesus your king? Let me offer a little incentive. I think this interesting slide sums up the book of Judges. It's about messy people and a merciful God. You're one of the messy people. So am I. Um, that being the case, isn't it better to choose a merciful king? Don't you want a merciful response for the messiness of your own sinful inclinations? Don't you want a merciful king who, on your behalf, suffered and died in your place so as to be able to provide eternal, everlasting forgiveness of sin? Since you are a messy person, why not choose Jesus, an intensely merciful king? Well, we have concluded our study in the book of Judges, but make no mistake about it, Judges is not the grand conclusion of things. Judges is not the end of the story. It's the book of, not Judges, it's the book of Revelation that's actually the end of the story. Therefore, I want to end by simply reading for you an excerpt from the final book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 21, uh, be encouraged by this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Our immediate future is in question. Our ultimate future is not. This is our ultimate future. Dear folks, I think things are going to get worse. <laughs> but the best after that is yet to come. Take courage. Your King Jesus is on the throne. And that's why we bow before you, King Jesus. The only flawless, perfect, sinless, and righteous ruler. Thank you so much for ruling with holiness and purity and incorruptibility. Thank you for your intense and unlimited power. And yet we thank you for bridling it with regard to us. What we have is not just your raw power. We have a father heart of mercy and grace. You're the bestest king we ever could have. We love you, Lord Jesus, for who you are. We love you for embracing us. And we rejoice in the fact that you've given us hope 
of the kind of future you have declared for us in advance in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Thank you for the book of Judges for recording it for us so that we can be informed not just about it, but through it, about our present day. Thank you for the relevance of your word of God even in this day. And thank you as you were faithful to ancient Israel in the book of Judges, so you remain irreversibly faithful to your children, those who've called upon you by faith, even today. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.